Morning, church. Good to see you all today. Last week, we were brought up through uh, when Judah was taken into exile into Babylon, and, and Chris touched on what this video just spoke about, that, that in the midst of suffering and in the midst of captivity, there was a hope that was given that not only would they be brought back from captivity, but that there would be a Messiah, one who would come and restore the nation altogether. And so you can imagine as, as Judah has seen Israel taken into captivity, the northern tribes, the ten tribes that were scattered abroad and still have not been reunited to this day, they're wondering what's going to happen to us. They're wondering, is God going to keep his covenant with us? And, and even more importantly, perhaps, is how will we keep our end of the bargain to him? How will we maintain an identity as his people in the midst of Babylon? Babylon took Judah captive and intended to assimilate them culturally so that they would lose some of that identity. And so Israel was asking, or Judah was asking, how is it that we live in faithfulness to the covenant? But not just faithfulness for its own sake, not just faithfulness hidden away from the culture, but transformative faithfulness where we impact the culture around us still. And this is a question that we ask as well in our own culture. We see some similarities between Babylon and our, our nation today. We see similarities between the people of God then and us as the people of God now. How do we maintain transformative faithfulness to God in the midst of a culture that denies him? I grew up in Colorado Springs, and uh, back in 1999, it was a Tuesday, I got done with my fifth grade class, and uh, I know some of you feel really old now that I was in fifth grade uh, in 1999. Some of you feel really young, so congratulations to either of you. Um, we heard that there had been a shooting about an a hour and 15 minutes north at a high school that all of you would know, Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado. And the next, the next day, we held a chapel service, and we prayed for the school. It was the first shooting of its kind, really. It's the, it's the shooting that set the pattern for so many others that have followed, unfortunately. And, and as we began to hear more reports of what was going on, we found out that there were 13 people killed in the shooting. And, and throughout the years, there's one name that has kind of remained pretty prominent in that story, and that's Rachel Joyce Scott, if some of you have heard of Rachel Scott. She, uh, she was on fire for the Lord, and she wanted everybody in her class to know Christ, and she wanted to reach out to those who were, who were hurting and were suffering, and she was willing and ready to give her life for her faith. And there's, there's different reports of how exactly everything happened, but it's really interesting because they started looking through journals that she had kept the year leading up to the shooting. And she had written things like, I believe that this is my last year on earth, the year before. God had somehow been speaking to her and preparing her for this moment. Even the morning of the shooting, she drew a picture with 13 black tears falling on a flower. Really interesting to see how the Lord was preparing her and walking alongside of her. And so as the two shooters got on campus, Rachel and another young man who was not a Christian but was interested and was wanting to hear more, she was sharing the faith with him. They were sitting out on the lawn, and so they were the first people that the shooters approached. And again, the, the reports are a little bit conflicting, but the story has gone uh, many times that, that they came up to her and asked, are you a Christian or will you deny your faith? And she said, I am a Christian, and they shot her multiple times, and she was the first victim. And when we look at stories like that, we see, we, we ask this question of what's, what's the point of those kind of sacrifices? 
It's, it's an admirable faithfulness to God, right? And it's the moment that we, when we're bold, not just faithful in secret, but faithful in public when, when the stakes are high. Today we're looking at Daniel chapter 3. You can go ahead and start turning there if you'd like. We're looking at the fiery furnace, one that we're probably very familiar with. We're going to start in Daniel chapter 3 verse 8. And again, Israel, or Judah has been taken into captivity in Babylon. And they have started to assimilate uh, the, the, the peoples. And they have brought specifically young people from many of the nations that they've captured to try and indoctrinate them with the culture and the language and, and testing them and pushing the limits of how far they're willing to go. So, when we get to Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar has built a massive golden statue, put it on a plane so that everybody can see it. Not a plane, but on a plane. And, um, although that would be pretty visible as well. Um, and, he, uh, and he demands worship from everybody in the nation. And so, of course, everybody does begin to worship, but we pick up in the story where there's a few guys who are causing some trouble and not exactly going along with that. So read with me in Daniel 3, verse 8 through 23. So after people have been worshiping, it says, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Um, Chaldeans is just another word for inhabitants of Babylon. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay you no attention. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image, well and good. But if you do not worship you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace seven times hotter than it usually was heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story, God. Uh, once again, Lord, an incredible an example of, of your people who have faithfully followed you. 
Your people who have committed themselves, Lord, in, in, in covenant faithfulness, just as you are always faithful to your covenant. God, we thank you for examples of people who live in the midst of a, a pagan culture, people who live in the midst of a culture opposed to you, so that we can look at them and emulate. And God, above all, we thank you for Christ who gave the ultimate sacrifice and showed us what it means to, to give our lives as a ransom. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, for those of you who have heard this story many times, I know that you might be squirming in your seats a little bit because I didn't finish the story. You're saying, hey, are we just going to leave them burning in the furnace, the whole sermon? Uh, the answer is yes, and we will resolve the sermon later. The... But what we see through their lives and through the whole beginning portion of Daniel, I think is three, three elements of what it means to walk in transformative faithfulness transformative faithfulness. Again, not just faithfulness where we hide out, we, we, we go down into a bunker, we tuck away our, our own community from the world and say, well, at least we'll just wait for God to deal with it and, and judgment to come on them. That's kind of what the Essenes did in Jesus' time. If you don't know who they are, don't worry about it. I'll tell you later. Um, no, what does it mean to live in faithfulness that is visible, that is in contact with culture, and that is transformative? So here's the three elements of transformative faithfulness. It is resolute in purity. Transformative faithfulness is single-minded in worship. And it is uncompromising in crisis. Resolute in purity, single-minded in worship, and uncompromising in crisis. So let's look at the first one. Transformative faithfulness is resolute in purity. We love that moment in the fiery furnace where, where there's that confrontation with the king. I would, I would probably say for me, that's my favorite part of the whole story. Even, almost even more than the salvation part itself. Because, because they're confronting against this person who is demanding worship against them and, and mocking God, right? We know that, king, we will not bow and God will deliver us from your hand. But even if he doesn't, we know that God, uh, we will still not worship your God, right? But I want to point out that their ability to stand in that moment did not start with that moment. Their ability to stand in that moment began way beyond that. We see in Daniel chapter 1 that they are laying the foundation for being able to say no in the moment of crisis. Now, if you, if you know much about the con context of, of Babylon, or you've, I, I've mentioned it a couple times already, what they wanted to do, rather than Assyrian, the Assyrian army, which wanted to scatter people, the Babylonians would keep people kind of in their uh, nations for the most part, but then they would assimilate them into their culture. And so we see in Daniel chapter 1, uh, verse 3, it says, The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in, in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. So what's interesting here is the first tactic of Babylon is not to challenge and to threaten death. It's actually to beckon them with flattery, to come and to compromise subtly. Right? We see the potential in you. Right? You are, you're the strongest. You're the wisest youth. We see what, what you could be made into. So come, share in the king's table. Learn our culture. Learn our language. Be, be, be in the in crowd in some ways. Right? Sometimes for us, it is, not, it is not the threat of death, but it's the promise of acceptance. 
that lures us into compromise in this culture. So Daniel, from the very beginning, in Daniel uh, 1 verse 8, he sa- it says that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So it's really interesting. Daniel, this might have seemed like kind of a small thing. Just sharing the food that the king is giving you. And we don't know exactly why Daniel rejected the food uh, that the king gave him. A, a few theories are out there that maybe in Babylon, we know that they ate pig and horse, and so that would have gone against the, the food laws. Uh, perhaps the, the, the food and the drink had been sacrificed to idols, so maybe that would have defiled them. Or maybe it was just simply sharing in the king's table and therefore saying, yes, we depend on you. We accept everything you have to give us. What, whatever it was that caused them to reject it, Daniel knew that if I make this small compromise, I'm not going to be able to stand firm later when the test becomes more difficult. Their faithfulness that ended up being transformational within even that culture was only possible because of the resolution to remain pure in what might have seemed to be smaller matters. Sometimes it's the small compromises for us. You can think about your own life, how you are challenged daily to give those small compromises. Maybe you are, maybe you're offered a new position, but you have to just change the ethics a little bit. You have to play the game of the company. Maybe at school or at work, you know you can make people laugh, but you just got to get a little bit crass, a little bit rude. Maybe, uh, maybe it's something more, um, more intense than that. Maybe it's a certain belief of the culture, right, that they're asking just assimilate to this. Just change your position on this, church, and it'll be a lot easier for you in the culture. We see that happening a lot, right? Or how many of you have used this excuse? I'll know how to engage culture much better if I watch that TV show, right? Who's ever used that before? Raise your hands. I'm just kidding. Me. These young men knew that God's way was the best way, and they can't compromise on the small things or else they are they're giving up what God has, not just for them, but for the nation. Now, how was it that they, that they kept that faithfulness? Again, did they retreat? Did they pull back? Did they stop engaging with culture? I've seen a lot of friends that I have right now who just want to move out of the city, just want to move out away from people, get away, protect ourselves, and I'm, I'm not going to make a judgment on each person's uh, individual situation. I'm not in the place to do that, but I would challenge you to think about what is your role within culture? What is your role as the body of Christ in engaging with the people who don't know the Lord, even when it's challenging, even when it's difficult? See, he brings it to his supervisor. Hey, I'm not, I can't eat of this. But the supervisor says, hey, if you don't eat of this and you become weak, I might, I might die. The king might kill me, right? So Daniel, <coughs> Daniel reasons, right? He uses wisdom and discernment. He, just, he doesn't just push his way forward or retreat. He uses wisdom and discernment in the way that he deals with it and says, hey, let's take 10 days and let's, let's see how it goes, right? He's willing to work within that culture. He's willing to be winsome, willing to be gentle, but also confident and bold in what God is calling him to. I just want to speak to the young people in the, in the congregation right now. Wherever you're placed in school, on sports teams, in friend groups, in the classroom, the small decisions you make that might seem insignificant are a big deal. The way you choose to engage or not engage in that conversation. The way you choose to engage that person who is the outcast or not engage them. Crass joking or not crass joking. Maybe it's a boyfriend, girlfriend, and you're deciding where's the boundary, right? It might seem like a small decision in the moment, but God can dramatically impact the culture through you if you will set yourself wholeheartedly to serve and follow him and be faithful in a way that challenges 
that sets trends, not follows trends. These guys were not 30, 40, 50 years old. They were probably teenagers at this time. And they're taking a stand for what God's called them to. Next, transformative faithfulness is single-minded in worship. Transformative faithfulness is single-minded in worship. When we come to our passage, chapter 3, verse 1, we didn't read 1 through 7, but you start to see this one word that's repeated over and over throughout the, throughout the passage. Let me just read a few, uh, a few of these verses. Nebuchadnezzar made an image. 3, verse 2, the leaders are summoned to come to the dedication of the image. They come to the dedication of the image in verse 3. Verse 5, they're told to worship the golden image. Verse 7, the people fell down and worshipped the image. And so on and so forth. Eleven times throughout the first 18 verses, the word image is, is brought forth. And this, this image that Nebuchadnezzar made, it says that it was 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. Which is 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He wants this to be imposed on the people. He wants them to know this is the direction that we're going as a nation. He's, he's demanding worship of this idol. And not only that, but two times it repeats that the magistrates and the satraps and all these other kinds of leaders come and worship the image. And then also that all the people's tongues and, and languages and nations come and worship the image. The whole nation is going in the same direction. And again, this highlights to us, you cannot tell what is right by looking at what everybody is doing. You cannot tell what is right by what the majority of culture is going toward. In fact, I would say, if you see the majority of culture going towards something, especially in our context, I would pause and question, is that really in alignment with what God is doing? Because our culture is not set on honoring God, on worshiping God, where they're set on worshiping all kinds of other things. Truth is, church, if you increasingly see little difference between your life and the lives of the general population in our culture, if you see less and less of a conflict between your values and the values of culture, then I would challenge you to seriously ask which God you are worshiping. If you never feel a conflict between your values, your lifestyle, and what the culture says, there are problems because our culture is in a really bad spot right now. It might not seem that way, but the way that culture is going, it is increasingly putting pressures on the church to conform, to be less con confrontive, to become more private, to take our belief and our faithfulness to God out of the public square. It's too easy to claim the right beliefs, to come to church on a Sunday, and then throughout the rest of the week to be worshiping the gods of self, to worship the god of acceptance, to worship the god of wealth and status, it's too easy to say one thing on Sunday and then live a different way in the rest of the week. There are entire churches built around the name of Christ that actually worship the God of self-betterment. And we know of many of those churches, and I hope and pray that we do not become that kind of church. So I want to ask us, who do we truly worship? Are we set in the same way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were? Daniel 3.12, I love this, this description of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This accusation that's brought against them. This is how he describes them. Daniel 3.12, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They pay no attention Look, church, there's many, there's many accusations that are brought against us that, that we are unloving, unkind, and sometimes the culture is right. 
Sometimes the culture is right that we're complete idiots and that we're cruel and that we're mean and that we need to think about how we treat the culture. Some accusations we might want to evaluate. This accusation we want to be guilty of. That we pay no attention to the idols of our nation. That we pay no attention to the, the pleasures that are put forward for us. Pay no attention to the, the, pro, the empty promises of the gods of our culture. We want to be so single-minded that we are accused of that. The text doesn't recount any conversation that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had between each other. Hey, how do we? Hey, we're, we're rising up in the culture right now. We're getting favor with the king. He's already put us over all of Babylon. So how do we make sure we go about this in such a way where we don't, we don't make him too angry, right? There was no question for them about what their response would be. They knew that they were going to only worship God. There was no chance that they were going to bow down to that idol. And once again, church, the only way that we can respond instinctively the way that they responded is if we've made the small decisions leading up to that point, if we've had integrity in our personal lives. Now again, I'm not talking about retreating. If you, if you are faithful in a way that retreats from the culture, that hides from the culture, then you also take away any ability you have to impact the culture. You, have, you take away any ability you have to confront those things and allow people to see you standing in the midst of trial. The reality is that our faithfulness to Christ absolutely is going to anger some people. And some of us too quickly retreat when we see that anybody's getting angry with us. We want to conform, we want to change, we want to soften it. It's going to anger some people, but at the same time, there's going to be a different group of people who see us, who might be confused as to why we're doing what we're doing, but also is going to be intrigued, it's going to be curious, maybe even be drawn to ask, what is it that you have that I don't? What is, the, what is the firm foundation that you can stand on where you can stand in the midst of people being angry with you? I want to ask today, if you know of or if you can think of those things in your own life that cause you to be double-minded in your worship. I've experienced seasons of double-mindedness in my worship where I feel I'm just weaker. I feel like I would collapse under any pressure. We know of those things that, that draw away our attention, that cause us to not be fully focused on the Lord. For me, sometimes it's just wasting too much time on media. It can be small things. Sometimes it's not a massive sin issue, but you know it's just draining your soul. And I ask you today, respond to the Holy Spirit when he points out that thing, when he's already put his finger on it and said, this is the thing that I'd like you to, to, to surrender or modify so that your focus can be more, more fully on me and be effective in your culture. Lastly, transformative faithfulness is uncompromising in crisis. Transformative faithfulness is uncompromising in crisis. The ultimate test of the quality of our faithfulness comes when we are confronted with crisis. And crisis can look a lot of different ways for all of us. For some people, it could be the untimely death of a family member, it could be a spouse, the death of a child, something dramatic that derails, that, that challenges our faith in God's goodness. It could be a, a sudden shift of life direction or tra trajectory, right? A, the, the loss of a job or an unexpected divorce or unfaithfulness in a marriage, something along those lines that causes us again to question where God has been. For some people, it happens when there is an inward desire, an inward sense of self that conflicts with who Christ says you are. And you're being asked to surrender your view of yourself and to follow after what God is saying. And then for many in the world, it happens when there's literal th threat of, uh, of, of loss of life, right? Loss of freedom. Paul says in 2 Timothy that all who wish to live a godly life in Christ 
will suffer. That there's, a, there's an expectation we should have of, of some crisis as we are faithfully following Christ. When we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are faced with their impending crisis, their response reveals their complete confidence in the power of God, the wisdom of God, and the worthiness of God. You see, he is powerful enough to deliver us from your hand. We are confident that he will deliver us from your hand. He's wise, he will make the right decision, but even if he does not, he's worthy. And if, if the foundation of your faith, of following Christ, is what you can get out of it, then you will be shaken in the time of crisis. But if the foundation of your faith is the worthiness of Christ and how, of, of how much surpassing value he is than anything else in your life, then you will be able to stand in the day of crisis. The church in America is already being pressed in upon by our culture. You've seen it. I want to give you an example that just happened recently. On April 18th, in the city of Bloomington, a conversion therapy ban was passed in the city of Bloomington. This means that it is now illegal for a licensed therapist with tens of thousands of hours to ex uh, uh, of experience to do reparative therapy with kids under 18 or even dependent uh, adults under 25. In addition, even parents who hire the therapist are able to be charged with what is called maltreatment by Child Protective Services and the child or children can be removed from the home and placed in foster care while the situation is investigated. Okay, so for those of you who aren't familiar with the terms that I used in that, let me explain. When you hear conversion therapy, reparative therapy, some of you have really negative connotations around that, and there probably are some forms of conversion therapy that should not be happening. But here's what this is talking about. Any attempt from a professional therapist, if a child says, I'm attracted to the same gender, or I believe I am the other gender, any attempt to guide the child in what we would believe as, as the church is God's intention for their life. What we would believe is to walk in their God-given gender identity. Any attempt to correct or to lessen the desires at all, no matter what the form is, can be fined by the city. $500 for the first time, 1000 for the second time. And the parents can even be charged with maltreatment. So this is, this is a real issue that we are facing as a city. This is a real issue we are facing as a church. And there's, there's committees forming and there's going to be a lot of, a, a lot of uh, process around this to, to challenge that decision. But I want you to see, church, that we cannot be playing church here at Bethany. We cannot be acting church. We have to ask ourselves, are we ready to be the church in the city? Are we ready to stand firm when culture encroaches to the point where they say, you can't just hide out anymore. You cannot follow this aspect of what it means to follow Christ. You cannot obey that command. You cannot believe that thing. Where, where are you going to fall? Where are we going to fall in those situations? Are we ready if even freedoms are taken? Or, or God forbid, I know we don't say this in America very often, but even if our lives were taken, which certainly that's possible, I'm asking us, church, to count the cost. Do we have the foundation that it takes to stand through crisis and say, Look, we're, we're comfortable saying our God is powerful enough to deliver you out of our hands, right? But there are churches that build their whole theology off of if you follow God, he will elevate you to the next position. He will give you wealth. He will defeat all your enemies. You'll never have a trial. And it's great to have confidence in the power and the, and the ability of God and that he will come through in some way. But what about the other half? Are we willing to say, but even if he does not, we will not bow to, to the gods that you are putting forward? We will not bow. 
What does it mean for us to have the type of faithfulness that transforms culture, that is willing to stand in the face of adversity? And I believe if, if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had not, had not stood in that way, put themselves in the position to be thrown into the fire, then Nebuchadnezzar would not have been the one to proclaim at the end of the story, there is no God but the Most High God of Israel. Let's read the rest of the story for those of you who are itching to see if they get out of the furnace or not. Daniel 3, 24 through 30. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors, everybody who was worshiping, gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not, was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Pretty amazing that he flips all the way. Now, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar probably needs some counseling because, you know, if you don't worship this God, I'm going to throw you in the furnace. And now if you don't worship the God I told you not to worship, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. So we've got problems. Okay? He's, he's not sanctified yet. Later in Daniel, you'll see him crawling on all fours eating grass. So there you go. But if they had not stood firm, Nebuchadnezzar would not have been the one to proclaim. God would have been glorified in Babylon. He would have made sure of that. But I don't know if Nebuchadnezzar would have seen it. And when, we, when we're walking through our own crisis, whatever it is, we have a few options of what could happen. We have confidence in God that he will deliver us. I don't know what the balance of that looks like with the reality that he also could not. I don't know what that balance looks like. But God asks us to have confidence in him, if not to deliver, to do the right thing. That he will fight on our behalf. He will vindicate us, whether in this age or in the age to come. It could look like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not a smell of smoke on them. Nothing that they were wearing was singed. Or it could look like he does not deliver us. In the case of, of Rachel Scott, who I talked about at the beginning, her death resulted in a foundation being made in her name that still ministers to people and tells her story and ministers hope to those who, uh, who are also suffering, also uh, suffering from the same things that even the shooters were suffering from. Her, her story is being used. But then we also know that there's others in the world who die every day and we don't hear their story. So what's, what's our hope? Look at Revelation. The blood of the saints comes up before the Lord and they cry out, How long, O Lord? And eventually justice will be poured out on the earth. Whether we see vindication in this age or full vindication in the age to come, that's why it's so important that we as Bethany Church live for the age to come. Why it's one of our values. Because it's the only foundation that will cause us to stand firm. And the last and most important thing, whether he rescues you from the fire or allows you to perish in the temporary fire, we know that he will be with us in the fire. 
We see that the Son, that one like the Son of God was there in the fire with them. And we see that Jesus ultimately became the one who cast himself into the fire. Not just in this story, but the full wrath of God. He allowed himself to be consumed so that we could be saved. And so that we could be saved to live in the same way that he lived. I'm going to invite the worship team up at this time. And instead of just all of us standing, I want to I ask for a response today. You know of the relationships. You know of the work environments. <laughs> you know of the situations you're being tested and tried with. Specifically with the question, what does it look like to live in transformational faithfulness? Faithfulness that comes into contact with the problem. Faithfulness that comes into contact with things that could potentially cause us harm. Maybe you felt a, a little bit of a tendency to shrink back. So I want to ask anybody in this room, youths who feel called to be more active in their school, people who feel more called to be active in their workplaces, difficult family issues that are going on that you don't know how to address, I ask that you would stand and that we would be allowed to pray for you. So if you feel a stirring on your heart, that you want a strengthening in, in transform, transformative faithfulness, that God would strengthen you today to be able to stand when the crisis comes, when, when the confrontation with culture comes, would you stand right now and let us pray for you? Thank you. Take your time. Respond to what the Holy Spirit's speaking. Okay, this is great. So, those of you who are standing, can you raise your hands because everybody else is going to stand now. And I'd like you, if you're around them, to surround them and to pray over whatever the situation is, that God would empower them in that to be able to engage with that. So go ahead and raise your hand if you stood originally, and then let's have everybody else stand now and gather around and pray for them as we take a little bit of time.